Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of National Talent Identification and Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach at the Aspire Academy, James Baker. Tune into the Pace Performance Podcast. So this is a part two after James Baker appeared on the podcast last week in the part one. So it should fit in seamlessly. But if you haven't checked out part one, make sure you do because some really good information in there around talent identification, around choosing the right tests to to use with your youth athletes, and also some testing options around growth and maturation. Maybe if you've got uh, an unlimited budget, which not unlimited, but a very healthy budget like the guys have over in Aspire but also if you've got a shoestring budget and how you can adapt what James is doing at Aspire into your environment as well. But this episode is a follow-on, talks more about the curriculum and building a curriculum to develop um, youth athletes and how they move from a developmental program to a competition and elite program. So a really, really interesting part two coming up with James. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with James Baker. Just just moving away from the testing and back to the, the maturation stuff. Being early or late mature, how does that affect experiences and development in track and field from your experiences based on your this, the track and field role that you've got? Yeah. I mean, in a physically dominant sport like track and field, it appears to have a pretty huge influence particularly in this youth age bracket between 13 and 15 where the the maturational differences are are at their their greatest you know you've got kids that have gone through early and you've got kids that are you know delayed in that in that process you know and maturing early gives the gift of speed strength and power when uh, and and the late developers are just are just left behind and then you know when you do that when you do that in a track and field setting with some particularly talented boys that mature early the golf is huge and the danger with it is you overlook the the potential you know really really long-term long-term potential talent because of what you're seeing in those outcome metrics time and distance and you know you 
if you have a coaching team that don't understand that all of these things are going to level out by 16 to 18 when when everyone's fully mature but you can lose people from the pathway because maybe they don't get the same level of support as people that are perceived to be you know more talented or they don't get selected in the first place you know and this is what we're trying to work towards with with some of our talent id and pre-academies keeping people in the pathway for long enough to see what they're really capable of um that's that's a you know a big a big thing for for us but yeah i think biobanding and understanding growth and maturation just have have huge applications in in a sport like track and field you know when when you look at a, a a sport like football obviously physical things physical attributes have have have, an, have a lot of impact but there's also the skill component that levels the playing field to a to a certain extent and you know skill doesn't level the playing field to the same extent in a sport like athletics you know because it is driven by those physical physical characteristics that um, we've we've talked about and i think you know in if you look at like an early developer in in track and field you know winning comes easy you know when they mature above everybody else they win easy you know they 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 come then potentially with an over over inflated perception of of their ability but then if that's not handled and and they're not challenged in the right way you know and they're not forced to kind of race people of a of a similar level as them then they struggle when everybody else does catch up because they've never lost but i think it also can make them a little bit sloppy and lazy in terms of the technical side because they don't have to 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 work as hard at that stuff and to win they just turn up and get in the blocks and pow you know they they're gone you know we had we had one kid early mature came in at grade 8 immediately put looked at some of the physical testing and he was already putting out 70 to 80 watts per kilo at 13 you know we're talking about elite sprinters needing to put out 80 watts and above within like the EIS system this kid was absolute horsepower machine like just just it just could put out um so it smashed everybody in in development like all the time you know long jump sprint whatever it was he turned his hand to like he was just more powerful than anybody else and and no one else could keep up but yeah it's been yeah now he's kind of found his level with the the performance group it's been a lot more challenging for him to deal with that psychologically and yeah just seeing you know where other boys have really mastered the craft from a technical perspective there's there's things that are you know are are big work-ons for him and then the the other aspect is then the, the kind of injuries that come when they've got that horsepower and not the 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 technical uh, efficiency, you know. So we're having having some challenges in that respect with 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 the early maturers. But then, you know, if you look at on the other side of the coin with the late developer, you know, for them, winning in an age bracket is almost impossible. You know what they they you know they're gonna what what is their experience of track and field? You know, if you turned up to the track every week and you knew you were just going to get absolutely pumped because these boys are bigger stronger and faster than you are you going to stay in the sport or are you going to go and find something else and, that, and something that's else. A bit, that's yeah that's that's the big that's the big thing so it's like how how that's where i think something like biobanding has such a, a big role to play in a sport like this because it can really alter the experiences for both early and late developers you've got the guys in between who are just kind of you know they'll they're there or thereabouts they're competitive but the extremes i think are are really interesting um to deal with both in terms of providing an appropriate challenge um and for for the early developer and making sure that they develop the skills and psychological characteristics to be able to cope later on but then the later guys you know keeping them engaged long enough that we actually get to see their true potential and they don't just go and disappear into into a into another sport because you know they can they can have a bit more success there so i think those late developers are def- definitely you know they don't appreciate what their true future potential is and i think there's a risk that the coaches don't either 
Um, but that's where when we can start to evaluate their physical qualities against like the maturation benchmarks, we can say, hold on, like this kid's pre-PHV or approaching PHV, but he's, you know, two standard deviations above like the average performances in all our tests. You know, he's still slower than everybody else. But against like boys that have come through at a similar uh, maturation status, like we can we can see that this kid has maybe a lot of future potential, but we're not seeing it on the track or in the in the circle right now. We need, you know, we just need to. This kid is, does look good, but we need to see how he's going to develop. And that then, you know, comes down to conversations with the coaching team and parents and everything else. It's like this is this is a kid we need to keep in. And we've got a couple of examples of of, of those kind of guys um, in in the pathway now that we've managed to manage to keep in, which I see as a, a big kind of win. I can definitely appreciate all of that because as a as a tall kid playing football, never used to have to jump, never used to have to jump, yeah. always just used to head it. And then you get a yeah. little bit older, people start to or you get a bigger lad or. The, the late maturer becomes a bigger lad and you're like, I have to jump now. That's not as easy to get to, to get into the groove of actually having to jump and compete, having five years of just like it just drops on your head and away it goes. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. I can I can appreciate all of that. Yeah. But just going to we've got a couple of case studies that you're gonna run through I've, I'm, I've got them on screen here but I'd love you to um to dive into some of the some of the detail of um, kind of extreme examples of early and late maturers. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, this this was something that when we unpacked it, we were just like, "Wow, this this really does emphasise the 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 differences of of what could be, you know, in terms of kids within the same chronological age groups of two boys. One was fourteen point three years, one was fourteen point nine years, so they compete in the same age category. And then when we looked at look at their 60 meter and long jump results first athlete who's a the later developer 60 meter pb of 9.14 seconds athlete b who's the early developer around 7.4 seconds for the for the 60. so you know one and three quarter seconds faster in the long jump the late developer jumps four meters the early developer jumps nearly six meters, 5.98 meters. So that's crazy. I guess it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So you, yeah. If, if you're then the coach and you, you don't have any awareness of maturation status of the athlete, you know, when you're asked who has the most talent and who are you going to select to come on camp? Uh, who do you think has got the potential for the future? You know, what, who do you pick if you're, if you're not aware of those things? You, you you're picking the guy that's that's jumping nearly six Smashing meters and and, yeah. and running under seven and a half seconds for the sixty. So, and then when you think of that kid, the late developer, he's two almost two seconds and two meters behind the other kid. Again, what's his experience of athletics at at that point in time, being in that in that environment with him? You know, you know if he doesn't understand. The maturation process and his parents don't understand the maturation process like it just you know they're like i'm no good but you know we've we've had conversations with with a boy and parents and they kind of understand where he's at you know we've got all of the, the measures and the metrics around him to say like look he's just not in the same place as this guy and you know it's more than you know how how can we keep him interested in in the sport, exploring different events, some that are more technically orientated, things like pole vault or hurdles and things that have more of a skill component that aren't just so so raw physical, you know, in 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 nature like the the flat sprint. But yeah, I mean, when we the when you get under the hood, so to speak, and and look at look at the difference between these two boys, it's just. You know, although they're 14.3 and 14.9, you know, six, approximately six months apart, a little bit more. You know, when we, when we looked at the percentages of predicted adult height, you know, athlete A was only 88% of his predicted adult height and athlete B was 99%. So we've got a boy that's approaching PHV and a boy that's very much post PHV and, and basically almost 
fully fully grown in a, a skeletal age and height sense. Uh, you know, athlete A, 150 centimetres approximately and about 31 kilos. Athlete B, 165 centimetres and 64 kilos. And then when we looked at the testosterone, when we looked at the testosterone levels, like athlete B had six times the testosterone when when he was when he was sampled. And then when we dive deeper into like the physical testing, you know, we looked at strength with the isometric leg press, athlete A, 2,200 newtons, athlete B, 6,500 newtons, you know, 10 times the body weight. This kid is very, very genetically gifted. Um, and the other kid, you know, he was still putting out six times body weight, five to six times body weight because he's only 30 kilos. So, you know, he's, he's still got some good relative strength characteristics. There's other boys, you know, that are his kind of development that are only putting out two times body weight. So is that an indication of his future potential to put out something like seven, eight, nine ton body weight? Maybe we just need to, we need to, we don't understand how it develops fully yet. Then when you look at the jump metrics, athlete A, 31 centimeter jump, athlete B, 50 centimeter jump. 80 watts per kilo versus 45 to 50 watts per kilo for the for for the for the late developer and then you know maximal velocity in the in the 50 meter sprint two meters per second difference 7.6 versus 9.6 meters per second you know an interesting thing uh like like i kind of mentioned before around like the 10.5 is like both of them had similar rsi uh levels but when you unpack how they did it you know the the one guy jumped 45 centimeters off 180 millisecond ground contact time. He was the early developer and then the late developer. You now he jumps just under 31 centimeters off 150 contact time. So you, you can, and athlete B is definitely a concentric guy. He's a pusher. You know, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to really ex excel in acceleration and he excels in these concentric tasks like counter movement jump. You know, this other guy, you know, I, I think he's probably going to come out a bit more elastic. He's not got, you know, he's not got that, maybe the same kind of absolute force output. Uh, but he's going to, he's going to do things a little bit differently. And he's, he's one of the guys, you know, maybe we'll be seeing at Doha 2030. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> when, when we really see him kind of come through. But, you know, we're, we're watching him carefully at the moment and how, Things are changing, and we can see through some of our maturation stuff. The time is coming, at, at very late in the day for for PHV, but it, it, it's happening. So we'll be excited to see in the next couple of years what you know what he kind of becomes and what those metrics kind of look like um, as, as that happens. But again, he's he's someone when you look at all of those scores compared to like the early developer there. They, they pale in comparison, but when you look at all those metrics in the context of other kids at the same stage of maturation, so approaching PHV, but he's one to two standard deviations above the average in all the, in all the results, pretty much. So that's, you know, why we're able to then say, okay, let, this kid's got something. We just need to make sure we give him enough time to, to realize it and don't lose him along, along the way. Let's have a little chat around the training aspect of the of the physical capabilities that you're wanting to develop to ensure that these these guys and, and girls develop and excel. Can you can you have a little dive into that and the, the training skills and the physical capabilities that you need to develop and how you're doing yeah. that? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what I alluded to earlier on in that there's the training skills are pretty consistent of what we need to develop. To develop these high levels that we're talking about here, high levels of relative power, relative strength, reactive strength and speed. You know, there's a toolbox that, again, doesn't really change year on year, aside from maybe some new fancy equipment coming out that we all go clamoring after. Uh, I listened to Angus Ross's podcast the other day and I was like, oh, want one of those passive squatting machines. We'll find <laughs> one of those. Uh, you know, YouTubing that now. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I guess training, training skills, you know, if we're going to develop high levels of relative strength, we've got to develop a high skill level in 
the strength exercises that we need to do that. And that's kind of the job of the foundation and development phases is to groove the patterns against body weight, layer in then the, you know, the, the, the volume and complexity before we give the, the training, uh, introduce the more advanced barbell, dumbbell, externally loaded work. But if the patterns are grooved early on, like that, that process is fairly straightforward. We've got a little bit of ironing out some creases to do around PHV when they grow rapidly. But yeah, those, those strength movements that we all know and, you know, the, I guess the holy grail, squatting, pushing, lunging, pulling, bracing, you know, rotating, you know, getting those to a, a really decent level by the time they're sort of in the latter stages of the development phase. Uh, that we can then hit the higher relative strength levels in the performance phase that enables them to, to perform at a high level. Olympic lifting uh, is, is something which is a big part of our pathway. I know there's a lot of people who kind of say, oh, it takes too long to teach, it's not worthwhile, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, for us, you know, I, I, I don't agree. I think one or two exercises in a program in warm-ups from, you know, very early on, you know, these kids, these kids can be pretty proficient without a massive time investment week to week, you know, and, and something that I try and do within the development phase, take a very balanced approach to, to physical development and make sure that we don't, we're not overemphasizing strength. We're not overemphasizing the development of Olympic lifting. You know, we make sure that we've got time for our plyometric work and the, the aspects that we need to make sure that they're robust enough for, um, you know, to tolerate the, the demands of training for the sport. So yeah, Olympic lifting will be a big part of it in terms of training skills. We use uh, ballistic exercises, uh, obviously medicine ball throws uh, at the lower level, um, but that will transition to loaded jumping, squat jump, jump squat, you know, with, with and without counter um, movements. Um, and that will transition into some stuff with barbells or, or Smith machine and, and we'll will progressively, yeah, I guess, load that over a, over a period of two to two to three years, from medicine balls to dumbbells, gradually heavier dumbbells, up to a point where they're, you know, start working with a 30 kilo trap bar and a, and a 20 kilo squat jump, and, and we'll just start to to let the kids get after moving those things, moving those things fast, and getting some objective feedback on uh, the gym aware or yeah, equivalent equivalent device and then i think that the big the big thing for us and something that is a consistent theme through the whole thing is that is the, the progressive plyometric scheme and making sure that these kids are developing elastic qualities that we can't really get from just if we just hammer strength training and, and olympic lifting but and we and we miss plyometrics then you know, we're, we're not developing those reactive strength qualities that, you know, are going to enable them to be successful in, in some of these, these speed power events, particularly you know, sprinting and jumping. But, you know, it's about, again, like everything else, taking a very gradual and progressive approach to how we expose them to the level of eccentric load and the, and the complexity of those exercises um, over time. That, that's kind of key, but it, it's something that's a constant in, in our, our programs, it, it's a little bit of dovetailing with um, the the track coaches and, and working closely with them to make sure that, you know, some track coaches like to take that on um, and have it as part of their their track sessions because there's, you know, compatible elements between some of the vertical and horizontal uh, plyometrics and, you know, upright running and acceleration respectively. Um, but there's others who kind of want that in, in the the particularly the vertical element in the in the gym component with you know um with, with me so it just depends and we just look at how that kind of volume and intensity looks across the week and across the year and you know do a lot of work progressing from softer surfaces and sand to grass to track and that's a, it's a big part of our kind of lower leg preparation for for when they hit the track in spikes bikes later on as well as you know the, the the improvements in reactive or elastic strength however you like to term it for for the actual event performance as well 
One thing that I wanted to put to you, and this was, I'm sure this comes up with people all the time. You've got this group of, you've got a group of kids, group of athletes, and you're pulling them all up relatively similarly, although they're at start at different levels. Everyone's kind of moving up. And then you'll get a spanner in the works and someone will come in who's either way above these guys or way, but more often than not a beginner with, with strength training or any type of athletic development how are you juggling that and i'm guess, i'm guessing there's people out there listening well i know there'd be people out there listening going yep got one right now how do you juggle yeah. that how do you pull that guy up alongside the rest of them and do your best to kind of get them on par as quickly as possible yeah i yeah i think when you've got like you say we've we've got a curriculum that we that we want to work to but there is always those guys that join late and it's definitely something that gets asked when i talk about this pathway kind of concept it's like, well, what happens when they miss the first part of the pathway? So yes, it, it, it's a it's a challenge when it comes in. But I mean, for me, how I kind of handle it is get them in and let's do a, a diagnostic session. And that's nothing fancy. It's like if you, if from a, a teaching, again, go back to the teaching world, you have different forms of assessment that, that you kind of use. Diagnostic assessment is where you kind of, you, you do a, a set of tasks or a lesson where you just and you're just watching and you're observing what are they like what can they do and that then helps you form your plan then you have formative assessment which is kind of like your assessment along the way and you're making your your judgments and assessments and tweaking and then you know your summative type assessments your testing your competition whatever else but those things for me aren't 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 necessarily what i would do immediately it's the, the diagnostic session and discussing with the athlete you know, what is their previous training experience? You know, as much as you can trust that from, you know, uh, uh, a young athlete that maybe isn't 100% clear on exactly what, what it was they were being asked to do, you know, previous injuries. And then that diagnostic session is, is just a very basic session, which probably from, if I'm looking at all my pathway pieces, it's like a foundation level program that I look at how they move in those basic movements, squatting, lunging, pushing, bracing, you know, can, can they hold a plank for 30 seconds? Can they do a lunge without falling over? Can they squat through full range of movement? Can they do a press up without, you know, their, their hips collapsing and, you know, they can get through a full range or, or can they not? And if, if they haven't, then right, well, if they smash through that, okay, well, we can maybe give them a couple of weeks of, of volume in those type of exercises and progress the complexity, but then we're going to get into, you know, more of a development type program, which is, you know, introducing low external load and, and progressing gradually. But if they can't, then it's a case of, well, they're going to be on a differentiated program. If you've got someone, we've had a number of kids that are kind of coming in the development phase and they're just, they, they don't have the movement competency to pick up a barbell or, or a dumbbell. So they're in the same session, but they're on a foundation kind of program to, to build those, build those basics. Now, what happens a lot of the time is particularly when they come in later is they're more mature so they don't take a long time to get to tick off all the boxes in terms of your kind of objectives and outcomes from a from a, a foundation phase like the from the curriculum we kind of have flexible objective based systems it's not hard and fast like session plans and lessons it's like right these are the objectives and outcomes can you meet those okay well you know, a, a kid that's mature that comes in in the development phase will probably check off those things in six to eight weeks. And it, it serves almost like a GPP type program, general preparation, you know, make sure they're robust enough. You know, okay, by the end of six weeks, they can probably hold a plank for two minutes, you know, do some goblet squats with, you know, 15 to 20 kilos, and then they're ready to transition to, you know, a, a, a front squat, 20 kilos. You know, those those transition points just become fairly fairly kind of natural. A foundation program with a kid who's not mature might take them a year to kind of check off all those all those boxes. So when they come later, it's just accepting that those or, or expecting them to get through that stuff faster. You know, they only need you know, and if you take a kid at, at fourteen or fifteen, it might take them six six to eight weeks to check off all those competencies. You know, in, in they come in at older again it might be three or four weeks maybe even less but like, oh, yeah, i've done that training okay well we're going to have a look at you anyway through these basic things how do you respond you know 
do they do a little bit of work and you know they they've got doms for the next six weeks and don't want to don't don't want to trade <laughs> so you know it's kind of managing those those things as well it's like okay i know you're stronger but we need to just make sure that you know you you can tolerate the work that we're going to do not throw you in the deep end and then you can't sprint or throw for for a few weeks just because you you're so sore and then the coach is pissed off so managing that um that that part of it and you know hold you have to kind of hold the reins in on on some of them a little bit particularly when you get these kids in that are speed power athletes that you could very quickly you know get these guys up 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 to speed but at 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 what cost you know in terms of like the other training aspects like the sprinting and stuff like they probably chuck plenty of weight on you know quickly and they and they they do it but do they tolerate it well probably you know probably not but you know you can see that they want to do what the other boys are doing because they can see the lads around them shifting a bit of shifting a bit of tin and that you know that that kind of frustrates them but i guess education process around that and you know it's then like looking at uh once they've had a bit of training get them into do a bit of testing as well and look at those those kind of characteristics that we know are, are required for success and you know we had a, a new athlete coming at the sprint phase this year started out with ross and you know straight away we could see he's got the raw power capabilities lots of potential but but big gaps in his in his development as well like in terms of training skills and another quality so in terms of raw power in like a cat movement jump awesome reactive strength not good no exposure to like plyometrics or, or anything like that you know um weak through his core in terms of just controlling plank positions and things like that so you know for him back back to basics in terms of the program 16 17 but you know doing some core and core work just to to get that that key area from a robustness perspective up together you know introducing some basic plyometric skills pogo pogo jumps learning to be fast off the ground probably you know it won't be something that he'll ever excel at based on how late he's getting exposed to it but you know he'll, he'll he will make improvements from where he's at that is that is for sure and then putting in place all the tra- strength training skills learning to olympic lift um that's a proving an interesting task at the moment but you know we'll, we'll just look at loaded jumps as a, a primary power stimulus for him whilst you know he's still learning those those components um and yeah and then checking off robustness in all, all those other areas as, as well so yeah and i and i guess another thing that kind of plays into it when an athlete joins late is you know what time frames are we dealing with until we need to see a performance or that athlete needs a performance of a of a certain level so you know if you get a kid in who's 15 16 but you know in a football academy or whatever he's got to perform and get a contract by the time he leaves under 16 then or under 17 then you know maybe to do to do that kid justice you you've got to push the performance measures a little bit a little bit harder than than you would if you you know you you can't slow cook him or he's missed his chance you know you've still got to try and have aspects of your program where you're checking off like the ltad objectives but you've also got to be realistic like this is this kid's one chance and if you take three years to get him to you know a, a decent level of fitness he's he's in the non-leagues he could be in the you know the the higher league so i think you know you, you have to keep those kind of things in mind as well you're not always blessed with um you know lots and lots of time when they join the pathway later and it's looking at you still got to do things that are you know effective but and and safe but you you need, maybe need to get a physical stimulus a different way you know for for this guy it could be you know maybe we end up using the leg press as his as primary strength stimulus to 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 get after the the neuromuscular adaptations we want you know rather than waiting until the back squat is uh you know up to a skill level where where we can really load it we're probably going to find things earlier that we can that we can do that with and 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 still you know we'll see positive changes on the track we've seen this you know we're not we try to not be tied to specific exercises and things with 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 driving more around 
you know, what what adaptation do we want and how can we get it with this person? You know, and, and I think, you know, yeah, kind of breaks away from the whole kind of curriculum aspect at, at, at that point where performance is the the goal and it becomes a more individual kind of process. But yeah, that's that's kind of how we would, uh, I guess, approach it with with those late those late uh, joiners. So we're just going to take a very quick break. I hope you're enjoying part one with James. So over in part two, we dive into some case studies, some really, really interesting case studies. And it highlights the differences in growth and maturation, how that can manifest itself into performance testing and how different two boys are from the Aspire Academy. So it just highlights how we need to be individualized in our approach and how important that growth and maturation monitoring is and how we actually view the the testing that goes on in these sorts of environments so superb and really really insightful part two coming up with james this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by output sports the swiss army knife for athlete performance so to celebrate their first year in business after eight years of research output have just launched a black friday sale so for the first 25 pacey performance listeners and followers to use the code pacey25 you can subscribe to their bronze package with a 25 percent discount until december the 1st 2020. this will get you access to an output imu all their measurement modules vbt power wellness rsi nordics strength endurance mobility and more plus access to their ams the output hub so check it out today to bring a new level of portability practicality and efficiency to your athletes testing and tracking processes so you can learn more about output on outputsports.com or follow them on social media at output sports where you can schedule a demo this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform Smarterbase is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one-stop shop solution for the holistic performance management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, the Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. So visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and this optimized performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They're also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. We've, we've spoke about the more event-specific groups, specifically the, the track athletes. Yep. In our previous yep. episode, we spoke about more the de development groups. How do they... One final question I've got for you, although it might be quite a big one. 
how different are they? What is different? And how do you manage? How do you manage both? Yeah. So, I mean, the main the main difference between the development program and the event specific program is is that the development guys are learning the sport and they are learning a broad range of events, multi events, to then specialize at a later stage. We don't want them specializing too early. You know, kids that come in thinking they're a sprinter at eleven, and you know, then you know they need they need a broad um, uh, experience that, that develops a, a range of skills, but also means that they're not, you know, getting overused injuries in uh, by by these repetitive actions associated with with one event. So the the performance level groups, it's more specialised training towards a a broader event group. It's not like you're just a 60 guy or a 100 guy. They'll participate like still within a range of events within that group, particularly in the the first year or so where they where they're just uh, transitioning. But it kind of moves away from you know I described it a little bit earlier as a flexible objective based system where we're trying to check off all these training skills and filling the the buckets of the different physical capacities up to a certain level, and then it's you know it moves away from this curriculum uh framework to a more traditional periodized approach and meeting the demands of the sport and addressing the individual needs of of the athlete and then that more traditional periodized year from a from a track perspective will be gpp spp indoor competition go on camp have a another specific prep phase and then into into the outdoor season like for our senior guys that that will that will be kind of of how it how it flows whereas the development program those guys won't have such a high frequency of athletics and they might the youngest guys will probably only have one snc session but they'll have gymnastics parkour type activities they'll do multi-sport which will include swimming volleyball basketball cycling around the the kind of aspire aspire park area they have a, a real wide range of activities that they participate in. And it's not to say the older boys don't still do some of those things from time to time, but it's more focused on, right, what, what we're trying to achieve. Well, we're trying to qualify for World Youth Youth Olympics or, you know, World Under 20s or, you know, something on a, on a more regional, a regional level. So that's, those are kind of like, I guess, bigger differences. And like I say, the emphasis, the emphasis is less on kind of checking off boxes and making sure these capacities and skills are in place and, and meeting the demands. And, you know, from a, from the sprint group perspective, you know, we, we look at um, where the injuries are predominantly in the lower body. We look at the, you know, more focused approach this year. We've taken to kind of monitoring trunk, calf, hamstring, adductors, making sure that those um, things are taken care of in terms of basic, uh, some some basic testing um and check that off along along the way and then get after the 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 high levels of relative strength and power as i said building on that that work that's been done in development and try to maximize maximize those those qualities um and like i mentioned it's it's clearer what you're dealing with in terms of the type of the athlete and biasing their training a little bit more towards their strength at, at key times of the year um enabling them to um yeah perform i guess at their at their max at their maximum one thing that's come up in conversation quite a few times james is is velocity based training and i think yeah. it's something that's it sounds great. And this is something that I mentioned on the on the mastermind we did with John O'Weekly and Lachlan and Dan Baker. It sounds absolutely incredible. You read the research, you read Jono's work, you read anyone's work, and you're like, okay, this this no brainer. But actual integration of that tech into an environment, especially especially in an environment with youth athletes, how hard has that been? Do you do it at all, or do you do it at certain times of the year with certain lifts with certain boys or girls? Um yeah, what's your what's your thoughts? Uh I use it. Yeah, I do use it and I use it pretty frequently, particularly with the older groups. Um I, I introduced it 
to the development group at one point this year, the older development group, development three, uh, sort of 15, 16, because I want them to be familiar with it before they come to performance. So, you know, as well as having kind of like the training skill boxes we want to tick, we also want them to be familiar with some of the technology and the testing that we're going to mm. use higher up. So, yeah, I picked out like four of the boys to kind of pilot the VBT with him. And it was just a gym aware on a, on a Smith machine jump squat. 20 kilos, they've been doing dumbbell jumping with 10 kilos in each hand for, for a while. So I thought, like, okay, we'll just give them a bit of this. So I introduced it to this group, and this was a larger group, 12, 10 to 12 athletes. Give it to four of the older, more mature boys. Absolutely decimated the session because the other eight kids also wanted to see what that was about. Oh. And we struggled We struggled to get them back on track. They loved it, They all, and they all ended up like trying to, try to have a go on it and to pull some of them off the machine literally because you know mm-hmm. it wasn't really appropriate for them but yeah but i think you know those those guys seeing those numbers were like oh, i like this you know i, I want to get after this i want to see what i can kind of put out and i think you know i i like it to you know educate the kids around it's not always lifting heavier you know we're not going to ask you to keep doing more jump squats with more loads or you know the, some of this is about targeting speed and moving light loads faster you know and that and let's do that week on week and see where we can kind of kind of get to with a you know a 20 kilo bar let's just and those are the things you look at like the literature that that probably have more transfer to sports like jumping and uh the, the jump events and the, and the sprint events like moving light loads quickly is possibly more important than you know whereas with a rugby player it would be moving heavy heavier loads quickly based on you know what they're going to deal with in, in contact for example so i i like it from from an education perspective on that but yeah definitely with like the younger groups i mean I, I, we've got like one or two gym awares that we could use it on but we've only got one one smith machine that we we were using on that day so it it just created like a massive bottleneck in the session completely ruined completely ruined the flow so actually after after that week, I, I canned it with them and just thought, right, I, I need to get the session back under control to get the other bits of work done. Then they're not quite, you know, ready to to kind of have that as part of their session, or you know, we we maybe needed to introduce it in a in a in a different way. You know, that kind of reflection on organisation. Uh, but then with the older boys, yeah, I, I do like it on on key lifts. Um, lifts I would typically use it on would be. The, the squat variation, whatever squat variation the athletes on, whether it's a front squat or, or a back squat, I would typically use that. Um, and then we'll look at those kind of look at the thresholds and, and what intensities are kind of part of that periodized plan. You know, so you know we we spend quite a, a lot of our our time in sort of 70 to 80, 70 to 80 percent with some of the younger sprinters that you know we just want the bars moving a lot faster. Uh, we don't necessarily want them like grinding out maximal work at that point. It kind of saves that stimulus to to a, a little bit later. So we use the VBT to just make sure we're in that in the kind of whatever threshold we want. If it's like 0.5 to 0.6 meters per second, and then you know we might dip in a, a little bit into some 0.4 to 0.5 with 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 some of them in in like a more max as we start to introduce a bit of max strength. Um, so we use it to monitor that that intensity um, on on some of those key lifts and make sure we've got it where we want in terms of the load on that day. And obviously, if they come in tired off the track, it might be a lighter load that takes them to that that sweet spot rather than the heavier load when they when they come in a little bit fresh pressure. They've been running some one twenties or, or something the the night before, and they they've really uh, really uh, been cooked then. You know, the, we will be able to adjust the load accordingly using those those velocity uh, measures to make sure that we're we're not again putting too much on them and and not getting the the the, the stimulus that that we want. And then the other thing that we'll monitor on is is like the jump squats or done quite a bit this year with or the last two years with trap bar jumps, where you know particularly for these concentric guys and we just have like I mentioned before flat flat loading or you know a, a sort of heavier to lighter loading scheme within the within the set to potentiate the, the lighter set and then yeah keep that 
keep that in for a block and just see beginning of the block what were the the peak velocities on each of those loads and at the end of the block what were the the peak velocities on each of those loads just aiming to move those light loads faster um, and then we'll also you know targeting strength speed aspect of the force velocity curve with some olympic lift type derivatives or or full lifts if they've got that in that that toolbox as well so we're, we're all across the curve but yeah that's how we kind of implement the the, the vbt element within uh within those um within those two different groups mm-hmm. i've got one last question for you and that's around the, the research that you're doing at Aspire, because I know it's something we've spoke about quite a bit over the years. Maybe not something that you've been either exposed to a lot, but I'd like to get your insight into the research, your research process and what, you, what you're diving into, which I think will, uh, will bookend this episode nicely. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely not something that I was exposed to, you know, early on, you know, heavy in the sort of teaching and coaching realms. Um, in the in the kind of early stages of my career and I, when i when i did my dissertation i looked at like some of the quantitative studies and i was like oh my god i don't even know where to start i'll just do a quality <laughs> qualitative study <laughs> let's let's do that 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 fits the way my brain works a, a lot better so you know i think that aspect a lot probably the first I guess eight, nine years of my career, very much teaching, coaching orientated with an interest obviously in the data and the numbers. But, you know, I think being surrounded by the people that have been at Aspire for the last three and a half years, guys like Marco Cardinali, Phil Graham-Smith, my boss, Barry Shillabier, um, and um, guys like Kenny McMillan, like when you show them data, they look at it in a very different way and start to pull it apart and ask you questions like, oh, well, you know, do you know if that test is reliable? Like, uh, yeah, well, the literature says so, but, you know, they kind of question things at a higher level than than, than what I was getting questioned in, you know, the PE setting. In the PE setting, I was getting challenged on my teaching organisation. You know, that was what the observations were about. It was like, oh, did your, how, your session, you didn't, did you manage the behaviour effectively? That transition could have been smoother. The tempo of the session at that part was really slow. You could have, you know, you probably would have avoided some behavior issues if you had done that. So just a different type of, um, I guess, analysis in two different, very different settings around what you're doing. So, yeah, I think being in this environment has it's kind of been a natural progression because of those questions and challenges about things that you're trying to implement. And it, you know, it brings with it kind of a, a higher level of accountability. And, you know, that's actually been like a, a challenge I've, I've enjoyed. So, you know, we started out, I started out with a project, uh, God, two years ago now, it just makes me realise how, how slow I've been, uh, in, in getting this thing actually written up. But we did a, we want we were looking again as part of that improving the testing process. What we'd kind of found was, or well, like from discussions with Phil and other, other people that had been doing testing and development, it's like, look, the drop jump is just really messy with these kids. You know, the, the skill of drop jumping just isn't there. And it's taken a long time to kind of familiarize them with with that test. Uh, but, you know, so they, we were really just getting a counter movement jump, a sprint and a few other sort of field tests. And it was like, we really need something which tells us about RSI, you know, and, and their their abilities in, in that kind of realm. So it kind of went down the route of a, a bit of a pilot project with the five max hops, uh, contact map five maximal pogo jumps uh but we kind of saw that that was a little bit noisy and then i was like right well i found the 10-5 rebound jump damien harper came up with a number of years ago i was like okay maybe maybe this is the one it looks good you know in terms of it's reliable and everything else and again it was like i said yeah you know research shows it's reliable i think we should do this oh but is it reliable in the youth cohort okay dig a bit deeper so kind of start looking at the um at the literature and we can see it's all older adolescents you know the, the the literature is kind of 17 years and up so we're like right well we can't actually be sure and then when we looked at the five max hops literature some of which was from rodri lloyd um it was like well actually the, the cvs are, are pretty noisy on on that in the literature as well so we saw that it was noisy when we did it in in our setting as well 
So can we be sure that the 10.5 isn't just the same? No, no, we can't. So we kind of set about, that was the first research project that I kind of have led on. Um, fingers crossed, it's about to get published after two years of, <laughs> two years of, of toing and froming between uh, ourselves internally. But yeah, what we, we kind of looked at the reliability of that and it came out really well. Um, and and it, it is hence why we've continued to now use that that test in our in our battery. But that was a, a, the kind of first, I guess, project that I I I drove um, and and have uh, yeah we kind of had to adapt the the project a little bit from when when we decided about looking to get it published. It was like we spoke to a few people, spoke to Paul Reed, uh, who was at Aspetar at the time. He was like, you're probably not going to get just a reliability study published now. You know, there's, there's enough of them. But have you got have you got enough data to look at that within a growth and maturation slant? You know, I, I looked at it and like, yep, we we did. So we we've kind of turned that into we've looked at RSI and, and maturation, um, and that's something which hopefully uh, I've got to do the, the last round of provisions this week on that hopefully so that so growth and maturation and rsi and how that kind of developed and then i guess our future directions and the stuff that we're working on at the moment is is a lot of the stuff i've talked about around biobanding and, and growth and maturation in track and field and trying to really you know under, understand that and and examine that in a in a very in a rigorous way We've, we we can see there's we can see there's enough in it that we that we need to we need to uh study it in more detail it's now a case of of, of yeah doing the the real the re, real detail around that and, and looking at those different maturation groups and physical characteristics now how how do those things then relate to performance in track and field what is it that really determines performance and and how can we you know evaluate competition using biobands uh, and what what are the how do the competition uh results you know what are the kind of relationships with maturation in, in different events um and hopefully help you know kind of shift uh shift the emphasis to to people i guess you know utilizing that data and, and it having a positive impact for kids that are participating in the sport that's ultimately the the kind of aim with it and making sure that you know more kids that do have the potential make it in in that um in that in that sport and that they're they're not they're not kind of lost so yeah it's those those are the, the things that we're really gonna gonna dive into now over the, i guess probably the next the next couple of years maybe longer based on mm. how long it's taken me <laughs> to get this 10-5 paper done but yeah we've got we've got a good team sort of wrapped around that project uh phil marco paul uh tom jones up at north Embria, so a few things that will come out hopefully before too long um on on that that biobanding stuff and uh yeah hopefully be impactful and useful stuff amazing well thank you very much for that it's across the last two episodes it's been uh it's been a pleasure to chat to you again and although it's only what 18 months since you last spoke lots has changed lots more information yeah. coming out so that's that's superb but james anyone that wants to get in contact with you about the stuff that's going in Aspire, the stuff that you did previously, previously at St. Peter's, whatever it may be, what's the best place for people to, um, to get in touch? Uh, I guess probably from a S&C sports science perspective, I'm probably most active on, on Twitter. Uh, I think it's at James Baker underscore eight on, on there. Uh, people can also, you know, we do quite a lot of LTD based education stuff on on the LTD network, so we're all pretty active on on there. If people want to get in touch via the website uh, ltdnetwork.com, like people can can hop on there and, and send us a message, and we can uh, yeah can can discuss whichever uh, area they're they're interested in, whether it's school aspire or, or anything else. Um, yeah, that's probably uh, the best places. If uh, people want to drop me an email, uh, James at ltadnetwork.com. Um, drop me an email there, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back as as quick as I can around all other commitments as they are at the moment. So, 
yeah, but happy happy to chat and, and discuss these discuss these things with uh, with people that are interested. Well, thank you very much. Stick around because I'll have a little chat after. But officially, I'll say thank you. Um, we'll no doubt speak very soon, but really appreciate your time. And uh, apologies no, no problem, for, the, for, the, for the apologies for the few technical issues along the way. We got there in the no, end. No, no worries. I no, appreciate the opportunity to, to, to hop back on and uh, have, a, have a chat again about what we're doing. Yeah, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 346 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with James. Big thanks to James for giving up his time and diving into everything he does at Aspire. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave, and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. So next week, we've got a coach, world-renowned coach from Australia. Then we come back to the UK. Then we go back to the US. We've got some really cool guests coming up who will give their unique perspective on performance.